Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Melissa Maiman, the buyer's agent, and we have a chat to her about how she serves both investors, owner-occupiers, and renters in the property market. And she shares some great insights about how to select property that all three are interested in. We talk about the opportunities in the market, a little bit of an idea about the more resilient pockets of real estate in Sydney. And she just gives us some great advice about selecting property and what she's seen working from an investment strategy point of view. It's a great interview and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's Melissa. Melissa Maiman, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. let's get started straight away, Melissa. Can you give us a rundown of who you are and and what you specialise in? Sure. I'm a licensed real estate agent. Um, I'm an independent um, real estate agent, so not affiliated with any um, of the larger brands. And I help people find properties, whether it's to buy or to rent, um, to live in or as an investment. Um, it's really daunting um, trying to find a property. There's an awful lot of research and behind-the-scenes work. Uh, then there's all the inspections and there's negotiation and it's really difficult for a lot of people, especially with our busy, our busy lifestyles. Um, so I, I basically specialise in, in finding homes for people you know, to live in or, or as an investment. We're going to dive into the methodology and the, some of the tips and the, and the tactics that you employ, Melissa. But before we start, what posters were on your bedroom wall growing up? <laughs> Look, I, I'm really into wildlife and animals, actually. So I, I actually had a lot of wildlife features on my walls. Um, I love homes, but I also love the environment around homes. So a lot of nature, a lot of greenery, and love a lot it. of animals and, and birds. Uh, you're pretty um, pretty active in the wildlife rehab world as well, I, I know for a fact. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, I am. I'm involved in wires. I've been with wires now for almost 10 years and I love it. Um, I specialize in birds and yeah, do the full sort of rescue, rehab and, and release. So a lot of baby birds coming in or injured or sick birds and caring for them, you know, right through to release. It's, not, it's very uh, rewarding. It's not a hobby that you would think the uh, the average real estate or property person would, would have, but I think it's, uh, I think it's fantastic. Um, how did you get started in, in property and what was your first investment? My first investment is um, a property in the eastern suburbs and I can't say it's done all that well over the last few years. The eastern suburbs market has not done fantastically in the last few years. Uh, but um, that was the first investment property and what got me started was just very sort of innocently buying property as soon as I could because that's what you're told to do. And selling and realizing, wow, you actually make a lot of money with gearing. Um, you know, you put down a 10% deposit, the bank lends you 90%, and you get the increase in value on the 10% that you put in, but also the 90% that the bank gave you. And I very, very quickly realized that is probably the smartest way to get ahead, um, to invest money really wisely, because especially over the long term, property always goes up, um, you know, long term being 20, 30, 40 years. And if you can get into the property market earlier on in your life, um, you can actually set yourself up for wealth for, yeah, for now and beyond. Of, the power of leverage, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Now, it's, it's one thing to, to, to jump into to property investing, but, but can you run us through your journey that led you to becoming a buyer's agent? Yeah, it was um, 
the first property that I bought, I actually rented, and the landlord wanted to put property on the market for sale, so <laughs> I just bought it. So that was that was an easy one. The next one was the hard one. <laughs> the next one was moving from that home and struggling for over a year to find a property. Um, there was a lot of tears. Uh, a lot of disappointment, a lot of auctions where, you know, the the purchase price was well in excess of what the agent had said it would go for. Um, seemingly frank discussions with real estate agents were not so frank. Um, it, it always seemed that buyers came in at the last minute with significantly more money than than what the price guide mm. was ever said had. Um, so after much frustration, tears, disappointment, time, it was almost a full-time job. Um, but also meeting some buyers agents along the way, I just realised that there was actually a significant amount of information that I could access but didn't have access to readily. And by that, I'm talking about CoreLogic and PriceFinder, which are more, you know, subscription-based um, property data portals, which are ever so valuable. But most people don't know about them or have access to them. Um, I met some buyers agents along my journey and decided that actually that's a really great thing to get into because while it's a complete pain to do it for yourself, doing it for someone else, um, you've got that emotional distance and detachment. And to look at it, especially if it's, if it's an investment, to look at it just purely from a numbers perspective, um, it's actually quite a different experience. Um, when you can remove the emotion from property purchase, even if it's a property you're going to live in, um, it actually becomes a whole different ball game, and quite an interesting, rewarding challenge. So that's what actually set me on my path Beautiful. to become a buyer's now, agent. I know a big part of your business is purchasing for, for owner-occupiers, so not just purchasing for property investors. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about working for owner-ox versus investment buyers. I've, I've heard a lot of buyer's agents will, will just want to focus on the investment side of things, sort of citing you know, owner-occupiers are a bit more emotional and it's harder to, to, to deal with them. What are your thoughts? How do you, how do you think investors and owner-occupiers uh, compare when they're looking at property? There's, there's certainly um, a degree of detachment that's required for an investment property because, strictly speaking, it's not a property that you're going to live in, so there shouldn't be the emotional attachment. But I think in reality, people do sometimes become attached to an investment property. The other thing that I think is sometimes discounted is the fact that a lot of people buy an investment property with the potential to maybe move into it in five or 10 years' time. So whilst they might want to rent it out first, they are looking you know, down the track, is this a sort of home I could live in? Um, the other thing also happens is that they buy the home you know, outright to live in but down the track, they end up, you know, having it as, as an investment property. So I always tell people that regardless of their intention now, whether it's an investment or something that they're going to live in, they should always consider the property and evaluate it. Is this something I could potentially live in if I had to? And if it was going to be an investment property, would it be a good investment property? What's the resale yeah. value like for this property? It's, it's definitely true that owner-occupiers are more emotional about the property and that can mean uh, a more lengthy search, more inspections, more discussion and, and back and forth and, you know, a property that you might have shown them two weeks ago, they said no to it and now they change their mind and their second thoughts and, you know, there, there is a lot of that. It, but that's it, half the fun. It's, it strikes me <laughs> as a bit of a worrying um, thing to sort of purchase an investment property with the idea that you'll live in it down the track. I mean, you, you, you're sort of trying to scratch two different itches there, right? And if, if you're you're looking at investment based on it's something that you'd be happy to, to live in, you, you, you're narrowing the the, the Search. Do, how do you sort of navigate that and, and, and do you try and sort of advise people uh, against that? 
Uh, look, sometimes, you know, they, they want to buy, say, a one-bedroom unit yeah. and they're a family of four and they're never going to live in that and that's fine. But maybe their son or daughter might when they're older and, you know, that's going to be in 20 years and so we just don't even look at it now because it's just too far away. But some people are sort of upfront about saying, look, I, I want to rent this out for the first few yep. years and then move into it later. Um, so I, I just have that frank discussion with people up front. Um, you know, some people are investing in Sydney and they're in Melbourne or Brisbane or whatever, and they're never going to live in the property and it's it's an outright investment property. But I always do ask people up front because I'm, I'm finding more often people are saying, oh, yeah, actually, it might be a property I might live in or, um, yeah, it's, it's something I want to live in yep. now, but then I might be renting it out later. So... Yeah, I, I try and keep it open a little bit, but you're quite right in saying, you know, sometimes you just have to narrow it a bit because, you know, maybe they live in Melbourne and they're never going to live in Sydney or, or vice versa, um, or, or it's just a property type. Do you think the idea is that they might them. be sort of trying to, to lock uh, in their next home at a price that's inaccessible to them down the track? Do you think that's sort of the, the, the thought process behind it? Um, it doesn't seem to be the thought process that I'm finding. I, I think it's right. more people wanting to keep options open. Um, certainly the sort of person that's got a number of investment properties, they're, they're not thinking along those lines at all. They just strictly want an investment property. Um, but other people are seeming to want to keep options open. And I don't think it's for pricing reasons. I think yep, it's more just flexibility keeping options view, open. Yeah, I guess it sort of begs the question, you know, you could maybe buy and sell um, something that might be a bit more investment grade stock and, and purchase the exact home that you want and have a better result. So, Absolutely. yeah, I guess a few things to weigh up there. Um, exactly. The, the po our podcast That's is obviously right. geared towards yeah. um, property investors, but I'm, I'm a strong believer in, in investors, you know, considering what owner-occupiers want, right? Because when you're getting your property revalued, you're, you're wanting the valuation to be as high as possible. And if you're, you know, just looking from an investor, then, you know, you, you're not sort of tapping into the price growth based on owner-ocs and investors. Um, what, what do you think about in investing in areas that have a certain percentage of homeowners versus rent renters? Do you think there is a, a, a sweet spot where we should be looking at a certain percentage of people that actually live in the property when we're looking to invest? I, I do. Um, I would generally advise yeah. rental rate of no more than 50%, um, regardless of the area. Um, homeowners generally will drive the price growth because homeowners are generally emotional buyers and people pay more for a home they love. And it, that's just sort of generally how it will work out. So investing in an area where you've got all tenants um, there aren't really the drivers there to, to push property prices up and, and drive growth. So I, I think it's always wise to invest somewhere where the actual property block um, has no more than 50% tenants, but also the area um, that you're purchasing in has no more than 50% tenants and even lower, even 30%. Um, I guess the other thing, if it's, if it's an apartment block and it's full of tenants, um, you don't know where the owners are living and how interested and invested they are in that, that property and its maintenance. And so what you don't want to do is invest now and rent it out for 20 years. And in 20 years, you know, nothing's maintained. It's falling apart and, you know, you've got problems. Um, you'd much rather purchase in a block and in an area where there's a lot of homeowners who do care, where you can walk up and down the street and, you know, the homes look nice. It presents well because those sorts of homes will present well, you know, down the track. And the fact that people are invested in and committed to their homes um, helps to drive yeah, property really price growth. Yeah, really powerful idea. And, and, you know, the, the point that you made about 
homeowners are the ones that are emotional and that's really where the price drivers are, are going to be i think that's a really important point i guess we can we can take it a step further as well and 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 think about what renters are chasing in in that area um how, how would you sort of i mean is that something that you do as part of your due diligence and 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 if so how would you sort of conduct the research to find out you know what types of people are in that area and what they're looking for um, I'm, I guess, in a very privileged position where I find homes for for tenants as well as for homeowners and, and investors. That's so exactly I exactly why of I cover all of the bases. The I mean, um, that, that, that's um, that, that's that's where it's um, you know really illuminating for me for, because you're you're someone that works with investors, with owner occupiers, and and tenants looking for for property as well. So I mean, in terms of sort of conducting the research, I mean, you can you can look at the numbers online. Grossfinder and, and CoreLogic and various other property data portals, even just realestate.com or domain, um, and, and find out, you know, property features, neighbourhood characteristics, that sort of thing. Um, it's an interesting one. I think we tend to lump investors in one category and tenants in another category and homeowners in another category. And I'm not sure that we should or that it's it's the best way to look at things because a lot of tenants are also investors. Um, a lot of investors are also homeowners. A lot of homeowners will become investors. A lot of tenants will become investors. So there's a lot of crossover. A lot of my rental search clients, for example, are downsizing and they want a really nice home to live in as a rental. Yep. Um, or newly divorced, they've come from a large home, they want something really nice. Um, it's unusual to find someone who says, yep, yeah, just find me the cheapest, most horrible place. I don't care if there's no blinds, stained carpet, horrible walls, no air conditioning, you know. <laughs> By and large, the sorts of things that tenants want in homes, um, storage space built in, something that presents well, freshly painted, nice carpet, floorboards, parking, balcony, garden. They're all the sorts of things that actually a homeowner would want. Yeah, they're not a different species, um, uh, renters, are they? I mean, I've been a renter myself and, and, and my DNA hasn't yeah. changed marginally. That's exactly right. And and I think, you know, neither is mine and neither has anybody else. It's, they're really the, it's the same property features. Um, whether it's a home you're living in or, you know, to rent or, or a home you're living in to purchase. I guess the thing is that renters can't readily change what's inside the property, whereas a homeowner can. Mm. So it's important if you're an investor to really think about what does a tenant want in this particular home? Who's the likely tenant for this property? If it's a big three or four bedroom house, it's going to be a family most likely. If it's a two-bedroom unit, well, maybe it's a couple or a single person or a, a young family, maybe two people sharing. What sorts of things would they like? And the sorts of things that tenants really like is storage space, parking, um, a balcony or an outdoor space, dishwasher, air conditioning, maybe a washing machine, decent-sized bedrooms, and something that presents well, smells nice, no mouldy smells. <laughs> so they're, they're the sorts of things, I, I think, um, in terms of, you know, if you were looking to purchase and you're conducting research into what do tenants want, I think you chase a nice street, a quiet street, not a main road, north aspect or a northeast aspect with property features that are attractive to tenants, um, a property where the price has gone up over time, a property where you can improve it over time as well. You can always perhaps, you know, new kitchen, new bathroom, carpet, painting, um, even little things like doorknobs, um, changing a toilet seat can even just brighten up a bathroom enormously. Not to, not to mention <laughs> um, the hygienic kitchen. <laughs> Well, yes, <laughs> but it's often just the small things that are overlooked. Um, you know, knobs on the kitchen uh, on the kitchen handles, 
um, just changing them or changing door handles, um, putting new blinds in. These things don't have to cost a lot, but they can really freshen up a place and make it look really nice. So... They're the sorts of things that I, I'd yeah, suggest. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I, I think um, you know a- anything that makes the property more attractive is going to make you know the the inevitable rental increases a bit more palatable. I guess. Getting back to the the first homeowners, yeah. um, from my perspective, I, I'm I'm thinking that you know first homeowners in Sydney, for example, are probably in the best position they have been in the last six to seven years um, from maybe a, a pricing point of view. But um, lending is a whole another thing. But I'm just interested in 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 the activity of of, of first homeowners. Are, are they are they ready to jump in at the moment, or do you think that they like to look for green shoots in the market like investors tend? to do it's an, it's an interesting time i i think you've hit the nail on the head by by saying you know we're actually in the best position you know for, for the last few years or so to actually just jump into the market um but finance is tricky and i think that's making a lot of first home owners feel a little bit nervous um they're worried that if they buy now and the prices drop further can they afford their home still so i'm actually finding a lot of people quite hesitant um i think Investors who are sort of quite used to property cycles and, you know, where we're at in this cycle and where we will be in the next five or ten years, those sorts of people quite, quite happy to jump in and, and purchase and they see now as a really great opportunity to buy, um, particularly because interest rates are mm. so low. Um, other banks are making it a little bit difficult and challenging for people. But the reality is we have really low interest rates. We haven't seen them this low for many, many years. So, it's an ideal time, but I think that for first-time owners, there is some hesitation and slight reluctance. And the main concern is, will the prices drop further and should I actually wait? Um, and look, you know, maybe the prices will drop further, maybe they won't. We don't know, but it's a pretty good time to buy regardless yeah. because if you're going to... Yeah. Uh, we were... Um chatting to uh, another chap on the podcast uh, Byron from uh, the Sunshine Coast and he said that uh, buyer uh, inquiry has dropped by 70% uh, so yes. i'm i'm interested in yes. the in the opportunities for sort of counter cyclical in investing and 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 the negotiating power that that buyers are, are going to have mm-hmm. right now could you could you give us a bit of an insight into to what it's like on the ground in in Sydney at the moment Yes, sure. I, I think, um, you know, very low option clearance rates, um, you know, where it was 80% plus a few years ago. We're now looking at 40% plus. Um, definitely um, fewer people coming through open homes, fewer people turning up at auctions, a lot of properties being withdrawn from the market. Um, I have in the rental space noticed a lot of properties that are on the market for rent and I look up their history and they've been on the market for sale for a year and not sold. So the owners are looking now to rent like rent the property out, I mean. So it's it's a very difficult time to be selling, but gee, a fantastic time to mm-hmm. be a buyer and get a really good bargain because of that. Um, I mean, the ideal situation would be a property that's scheduled for auction, that doesn't sell at auction, and yeah, you've got great position then to, to negotiate the purchase price down um, or negotiate terms of settlement or terms of the contract that are favourable, you know, to the purchaser. So definitely, you know, counter-cyclical investing is is wonderful. Um, And I I do think now is the best time to be negotiating on a property that there's almost no negotiation, you know, in a really high Mm. rising market. If you don't want to pay what the owner wants to achieve, someone else will pay it and, you know, there you go. Um, 
but now is actually a really good time to be able to negotiate purchase price and and whatever else you would like to have included in in the contract. I'm I'm, I'm convinced, Melissa. So we 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 we've got to get something, all of us. We've got to try and find the money because I think mm. that uh, you know now is a good time. <laughs> and just just based on that negotiation power that we have, you mentioned before that um, people will engage you just because of them being time poor and not being able to do the research and the the negotiation, but. Um, I want to sort of hear, uh, I guess, a bit of a sales pitch. We're a bit anti that in the podcast, but this uh, this will be a hypothetical. For, for someone that sort of steadfastly doesn't sort of see the value of um, a buyer's agent over and the time saving, can you give us a bit of an idea about, um, you know, the value adds that buyer's agents add to the, to the property investment asset selection and negotiation process? Yeah, I, I, look, I think if you're a really seasoned investor and you've got the time and the motivation to find your own investment property and you've got a good track record of finding good investment properties, then maybe you don't need a buyer's agent. But those sorts of people are generally very, very busy. And the main issue I find is people choosing the wrong sort of property as an investment property. They actually don't have the fundamentals down pat to know uh, what's going to be an investment grade property to buy. Probably no more than 1% of properties are investment grade. So for every 100 that you go through, there might only be one that's actually suitable to purchase as an investment. So over time, I think what tends to happen is fatigue. People just get fed up and sick and tired of another property to look at, another inspection, another auction. Oh, look, I'll just buy the next one that comes up. And they end up with this horrible property with a south aspect and a tiny little balcony that you couldn't even put a table and chairs out on and it's got no parking and it's grotty and horrible inside. And then they go, oh, gosh, I think I've, I've done. actually even done that with uh, <laughs> right. houses to, to live in before. It's a, it's a real <laughs> So um, g- getting back to the, to the market um, such as it is at, at the moment, um, I was reading an article the other day that said that you know, the, the, the lower sort of price quartile of the property market's been fairly resilient, but the top end of town is, is where the, the, the major falls have been happening. Where, where, where do you sort of see some of the hardest yes. um, areas being hit, um, perhaps focusing on the, on the Sydney market? Um, and once we sort of get to the bottom, what, what are we going to be looking with, uh, looking at you know where are the areas that are going to have done or done okay and and where are some of the areas that are going to see those massive falls i think the massive falls will be more southwest northwest um sort of that band campbelltown maybe even extending through to liverpool um and extending further southwest of campbelltown um west of Parramatta, northwest sort of heading out bookham hills that way um there's an awful lot of development in those areas um, even closer into the inner west, there's a lot of new developments and some yeah, famous yeah, exactly. ones now <laughs> um, <laughs> that are sort of causing some concern. So I think those areas are going to be hardest hit, uh, particularly around Open Tower and what's happened there. Um, I think the more resilient areas will be the lower North Shore, pockets of the upper North Shore, definitely the eastern suburbs, the inner west. Um St George, Sutherland, Shire will probably remain reasonably stable, not take too much of a hit, but also not go up too much either. Um, I think the areas that have always been strong performers, being in the inner west, um, eastern suburbs and lower north shore, will continue to be um, the stronger performers as we weather this this phase of the property cycle. Um, Even in those areas, the higher end of the market is coming down quite a lot, but that is typical in this stage of the property cycle. Unit prices are, are tricky because you've got a lot of old stock and a lot of new developments. 
the new ones tend to be selling at a premium but often have building defects which need to be factored into the cost down the track. Um, older properties, more Art Deco, tend not to have the building defects but they have higher costs of maintenance and they tend to sell for much less than what, you know, what a brand new property would sell for. Um, I wonder if over time the gap between new versus sort of old Art Deco will actually narrow um, as, as we get that evening out of sort of rectification costs versus maintenance costs. Um, that's, I guess, in the unit space. Um, but in terms of the geographic areas, eastern suburbs in the west and Lower North Shore will do well. I guess these are just areas where typically we've 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 always had high high demand from from people that have got a pretty high disposable income. Uh, I'm I'm really interested though in um in, right. in in comparing older units versus new units. So let's say you know we've got there's there's places like uh, the Gold Coast, for example, that have you know old sort of walk up unit blocks uh, within you know a stone's throw of of massive unit developments. Do you do you think that the that that is a, a I guess a competing development, or, or are they completely different people that are that are wanting to purchase or or rent these properties? On the one hand, they're they're different, and on the other hand, they're competing. So I think if you're looking at certain, uh, if you look at perhaps an elderly pe- person who's downsizing, they tend to want to go for something new, particularly where there's parking and a lift. Um, they would tend not to go for something older where they've got stairs and possibly no parking. If you're looking at a younger person, there is often competition because they just want to go for the new property with all of the sort of conveniences and, and luxuries that, that newer properties tend to have, uh, you know, air conditioning, balconies, parking, it's just new and fresh. Um, so I think on the one hand there's competition within some groups and then on the other hand they attract completely different people. So it, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's both at the same time. I guess if you've got an older Art Deco property stacked up next to a brand-new development, mm. most people flock to the brand-new development unless that old Art Deco property is done up very nicely inside and renovated. And in that case, it will probably attract more people um, just because it will tend to offer um, larger bedrooms um, and just a more spacious feel I'm just, you know, I'm just, inside. I guess I'm wondering, inevitably, we're going to see maybe a, a, a relaxation of some of the height requirements in places like um, the eastern suburbs for example so take Coogee for example you don't get 26 storey um, apartment complexes but I mean that's an obvious way for councils to generate some extra revenue and to sort of remove some of these um, supply constraints. Um, is that something that you would see happening and, and in that and I guess that's what the case study we're talking about there like in the Gold Coast right we could be seeing that in Sydney? Yeah um I think over time that that is what will happen. I, I think if we have this conversation in thirty or fifty years' time, we will be looking at, at you know high rises in Coogee. Um, j- just you know population growth and and drivers of of demand will will mean that that will probably be the case you know over years. I don't think that that will be the case in the next five to ten years, uh, particularly with all of the developments that have happened further west. I think that they will probably wait for that supply to be. Um, accommodated and adjusted to before putting sort of great big high rises up in, in Coogee or, you know, Bondi or those sorts of areas, it would change the view and the outlook 
quite considerably. Um, but I think that we're a way off I'm quite, I'm quite um, that sort of development <laughs> scope happening in those. Look like a, a scar yeah. on the on the on the eastern suburbs there. Hopefully that's a, a little Good. while off. We, we, we were talking about the lending environment a little bit yeah. before and and its influence on the property market. You're obviously working with investors and owner occupiers. Has it hit everyone across the board, or has it been particularly difficult for investors with you know some of the slightly higher interest rates that you're paying just because you're an investor? Definitely, definitely, and and the threat of having to go to principal and interest rather than interest only. Um, the additional information that banks are requiring before they'll um, approve any property, uh, sorry, approve any finance, I think is making it all really difficult. Um, I've spoken with a lot of buyers who just can't get finance, whereas a few years ago there wouldn't have been a problem. Um, a lot of people quite disheartened and, and distressed, um, you know, sort of, oh, I should have bought two years ago when I could have got the finance and now I can't. Um, so I think, I think that is difficult. And then for homeowners, it's also difficult, but I think they're also thinking, well, if the prices mm. come down, maybe I should just wait anyway. So, I mean, across the board, I think there has been a reduction in the number of buyers. Um, and I, I just think you need to walk through the open homes to see how many people are not there versus how many people used to be there. Um, you know, first open homes in there. Wow. Whereas, you know, yeah, two to three years ago, you're trying to get it in the front door. <laughs> you know, you can't. <laughs> I can remember queuing out on the street for one property. Um, and it was it was just a tiny little kitchen. It was so-called two bedrooms, but you could only just fit a, a single bed in the second bedroom. It was tiny, tiny. And we couldn't get it in the front door. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Oh, and and now, contrast, you know, the negotiating power then compared to today. Yes. That's right. That's right. But I, I think the property research is still just as important now because where you've got people who are quite desperate to sell and agents who are also quite desperate to sell because they don't get paid if they don't sell, um, you actually need to be really cautious with buying in, in this sort of a market mm. um, just to make sure that, you know, the property you're buying is is what it should be. Um, you know, definitely get a building and pest report, definitely get a strata report. But even further than that, go into the strata manager's office and actually look at, at the reports yourself, have a look at the emails, have a look at all of the files, um, really put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I think it's even more important now than, than years ago because some people are just really, really desperate to get a sale. Mm. Yeah, and I mean the strata reports is a is a great tip. I was looking at something the other day, and there was a, there was an angry confrontation about gardening decisions um, on on record that was that was noted in the strata minutes. Now, obviously, there's some silly stuff in there, but there can be some very serious things that can you know amount to to big repair bills or, or escalations in the in the in the sinking fund levies and that sort of thing. With um with the lending, just mm -hmm. sticking with the lending side of things, how do you rate the sort of the APRA intervention. Um, I mean, the the, the the banking regulators came in and, and really whacked the market pretty hard. Um, it was obviously that uh, obvious that the market was was booming and, and some sort of notions that things were getting a little bit um, out of control. How, how did you rate that inter intervention? And 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 do you think that it was the right approach? Or and you know, was it too much? Was it not enough? Where do you sort of land on that, Melissa? I think that the, the approach for overseas investors was the right approach to take because a lot of Australian property was being purchased by overseas investors, which meant prices were going higher than, than what our Australians you know, could afford to pay or get finance for. 
Um, I, I really do think the intervention for the overseas investors was the right intervention, but I don't really think the intervention for the Australian investors and homeowners was, was appropriate. I think it's just made it even more difficult for people to purchase uh, in an environment where interest rates are low, property prices are high. So it's, you know, you've got low interest rates that could encourage people to purchase, but the high uh, pro- property purchase price is a detriment. So you've already got the balance there. Mm. I I did really think any intervention needed to be put in place for Australians, um, but I do think it was right to, to um, limit the overseas investment more of a, a fair go in, in being able to, you know, purchase a home or an investment. And how important do you think is the availability of, of, of credit to the economy? Obviously, the, the RBA has sort of come out and tapped the, the, the banks on the shoulder and saying, you know, if you if you guys wouldn't mind lending a little bit because um, it actually makes a, a pretty important difference to, to things. How do you rate that sort of availability of credit? Do you think we might sort of get into trouble if, if we're not loosening the, the, the strings a little bit? Credit is always important and serviceability is also important. Um, I, I think credit, you know, helps the world to go around. You know, people can't buy properties outright. They, they do rely on credit. We have credit cards. Credit is, is everywhere we go, really. Um, I think it's right that we have um, better checks and balances against serviceability to make sure that people can continue to service the loans that they have. Um, but generally speaking, <sighs> Yeah, it's it's a tricky one, but I think that the right thing has been done there. Mm. Let's jump into to investing uh, yourself. So obviously you're you've been an investor for a while. Um, you represent property investors, but I'm interested based mm. on what you've learned yourself and working with people. What sort of investments you've made, and uh, and what do you consider to be this one percent investment grade property? How how would you sort of define that sort of property that we should be looking at? It's it's quite a large question. Uh, <laughs> I'm famous for, for that, or well, maybe no, having eight in one. But um, you you you, you do with not, it as you please. Well, I, I could be here all day talking about this. <laughs> I I think there's three main things that go into an investment grade property. There's the property itself, what's what's in it, what's around it. There's the neighbourhood, and then there's the other things that you need to find out um, that are not readily apparent to you. And by that, I'm thinking the contract, the building and pest report, the strata report, any other information you can find out from councils, all that sort of thing. So within the property itself, you're looking at the things that can't be changed about the property. So we're not looking at the carpet. We're not looking at the paint. We're not looking at the blinds because all that can be changed. What we're looking at is what can't we change? And particularly for unit blocks, it's important because you can't knock down your unit and build another one. It, that's just not something you can do. You can do it with a house, but it's going to cost a bit of money. So that needs to be factored in. So the one thing that I think people are really not looking at is aspect. And you know when you walk into a place that's got a south aspect, it's cold, it's dark, it's gloomy, it's mouldy, it's horrible. Yeah. You just want to get out again. You know when you walk into a place that's got a north or northeast aspect, it's bright and sunny inside, it has a good feel about it. You walk in and you go, oh, this is nice. So... I think a lot of people are looking at location and, you know, the property and what suburb it's in and that sort of thing. They're not actually looking at aspect and it's really important and you can't change it. You've also got to look at the size of the property because unless it's a house, you can't change that either. So then there's the other things, sort of the configuration, what sort of walls you might be able to knock down or put up or those sorts of things. That That's sort of one part of it. 
the next part is the location. So what sort of person would live in that property and is an area that would be suitable for that person as well? Um, if it's suitable for a family, well, families will need schools, shops, maybe hospitals, medical centres, transport to get to work. So is that a feature around the property and, and near enough by? Um, people generally want to be within a 10 or 15-minute walk of a train station, if there is one, and probably within about a three to five-minute walk of a bus stop. Um, most people want to have a coffee shop around the corner that they can go to, shops that are within a 10-minute walk. So they're, they're the sorts of things that you look at in terms of what's around the property. But then you've got to look at the behind-the-scenes information. What's in that strata report? What happens when you go into the strata manager's office and you look at all of the other records you can find? Um, what does the building and pest report say? How thorough were they when they did the building and pest report? You know, it's best actually to go out with them, you know, when, when they're doing the, the inspection and, and actually talk to them and, and have them show you through the things that they're finding when they do the building and pest report. So then it's a case of putting all of those pieces of the puzzle together and if everything stacks up, well, then it's an A-grade investment property. But more often than not, there's no parking, there's no balcony. If it's a unit, it's the wrong aspect. Um, some people don't want ground floor units. They they consider it to be a security risk. A lot of people also don't want top floor if it's a walk-up because they don't want to be walking up all those mm. stairs all the time. Um, things like strata levies, if there's a lift and a pool. So all of these things need to be taken into account. And essentially what you're looking at is what's the purchase price likely to be? What's the rental return likely to be? What will it cost me to hold this asset and is it worthwhile? So it's it's putting all of that together. When you combine all of it, probably only about 1% of properties are, are actually investment grade. I think grade. that's a... That's a pretty fantastic answer. A great blueprint to, to looking at a property. You've 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 done a, a tremendous job with what was a clunky and terrible question. So thanks for that. No, no, it wasn't. I just thought I might be um rubbing no, on all day I, long I about very it. Succinct. I mean, <laughs> of course, this this could be a completely another uh, episode. But I think that that's great advice from from a general point of view, and and particularly like the the idea of, of of following a pest and building person around. Now they might not necessarily like it themselves, but these documents tend to be just big, thick disclaimers with a few comments, right? So yes. the conversation that you can have uh -huh. with them is going to be different to what they're happy to put in writing against their professional indemnity insurance, right? Correct. Correct. And sometimes what looks really scary in a report is actually mm. not that scary. Um, or it looks really bad in the report, but it's not going to be that expensive to fix. And it, it's just, you know, simple, simple stuff. Uh, other times, they can't say too much in the report because they can't say that it is definitely really bad. Um, so they sort of hint at it and you, you miss mm. that subtlety. So walking through, they can say, look, you know, this is likely to be a really big problem. Can't say for sure because you're going to need to get whatever other report's done, but this is likely to be a problem. Um, I had a property recently where that was the case and it was probably going to be a huge drainage issue on the balcony, which was actually affecting all of the balconies. Um, water penetration issues, the works. Interestingly, I could actually see that as a problem when I looked at the property on Google Maps. Um, so that's wow. how sort of <laughs> thorough I can be with search um, and, and researching the property. But um, that was a subtlety that wouldn't have come out. Um, we actually did get a building report, even though it was a unit. Um, but that was a subtlety that couldn't really come out in the building report because the building inspector couldn't say this is definitely the problem. But it was a case of saying, putting A and B and C together, this is likely to be a big problem, likely to have huge levies coming up, probably don't yeah, buy this well, one. That could be really painful. Yeah. Now, 
Well, that, that's you know, yeah. the buyer's agent. It's, it's it's sort of it's the experience and knowing you know what to do and how to assess the information and, and how to join the dots together and, and interpret that picture. Pay for yourself on that one. Now, um, Melissa, I've written I've read some blogs that you've written before, um, talking about investment um, properties or, or particularly strategies that are the best are often the most boring. Um, now, I, I know you'll you'll be able to keep us uh, you'll be able to keep us awake, but I I, I do want to dive into what what you're getting at there. Well, what I'm getting at is the perfect investment property is one where you can sleep at night. <laughs> um, boring being money comes in, you've got a great tenant in, there's strata levies that are just predictable, no special levies coming up because there's just other than the normal building maintenance work, there's really nothing um, that's needing to be done. And it's basically just boring. It's just money coming in, mortgage gets paid, and and that's it. An interesting sort of investment where you're, you know, kept up at night and you're on your toes and you're losing sleep over it because you've got a looming special levy of $200,000 and there's a whole lot of other work that's sort of been put off and delayed, but now you really need to, you know, pay this special levy and the property's been vacant for two months and you've dropped the rent. Those are the properties we don't want. No, already I'm breaking out into a sweat. Yeah. So, I mean, in choosing an investment grade property and really, you know, going through it very thoroughly, doing your due diligence really well, really thoroughly, you should just have a really boring investment. It's interesting when, when you talk to people who own shares, they can often tell you exactly what their shares are worth yeah. each day. When you talk to property investors, they've got no idea what their property is worth. And, and why would we know? Because we really don't know until it sells. But we just know that over time, particularly 10, 20, 30 years, the property is going to go up in, in price. Um, so really, if we can get through that time period with rent coming in the door regularly and reliably, good tenants who look after the property, no major special levies that come out of nowhere, um, you're doing well. It's boring though. <laughs> so of the people that you've worked with that have, that have got this boring approach or this boring strategy, have you seen investors do sort of better than others? I'm interested if, if there's anything that you've seen or you've been able to achieve yourself that would be something uh, that the listeners would be interested to, to hear about. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question because property investing always depends on your timeline. And uh, I mean, if you buy now at a low point in the market and then you sell in seven years, perhaps time, um, maybe, you know, we'll be at a higher point in the market then, well, you'll do really well. But if you bought a few years ago and you're selling now, you haven't done well. So it's it, it's sort of in terms of you know how you're going over time, it's about timing when you purchase and when you sell, if you're going to do that over a shorter period of time. And if you're going to do it over the longer period of time, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, you can look at properties 20 years ago that were $100,000 and are now worth, I don't know, a million. It really wouldn't have mattered if that 100000 was 90000 or 110000 because that property is worth a million. So in terms of de delivering, you know, better than average results, um, I mean, the ideal thing would be to buy low, buy a property that you can improve the value of dramatically, you know, full renovation inside, um, spruce it up outside, fix up the gardens, add some parking, that sort of thing, and then sell high. Um, and that would be the best approach. But it is a bit of a risky approach because it's hard sometimes, as you would know, to cost out, you know, exactly what things are going to cost. And then what they end up costing might be different. Um, that's where hiring someone such as you would be wonderful um, to, to sort of help smooth that process out. Um, there is still an element of risk because you don't know what the market's going to do. Um, 
here I am saying in seven years' time, hopefully it's going to be high, but what if it's not that high? So it's it's a little bit risky to capitalise. A safer approach is Some just to buy assets, and hold. Hold on and uh, um, we'll, we'll revisit you yeah, in seven years definitely. and I think you'll get through that one without any issues. Um, uh, and, and continue to, to update and improve the property. You know, put the dishwasher in, paint it every few years, um, make sure the carpet's in good condition, polish the floorboards, change the window coverings, um, keep the, car- the garden looking good. You know, do those sorts of things that improve or at least maintain the value of the property. And then, yeah, sell, you know, down the track. But preferably it. don't sell. That's the key. <laughs> Buy, uh, Melissa, sell. How, how do people get in uh, contact <laughs> you if they're interested in, in having a chat and learning a little bit more about what you do? couple of ways. Go through the website, which is www.mmba.com.au or, or ring um, 0456 um, I appreciate the time, uh, Melissa. We've, we've, we've gone through <laughs> some, some great stuff and we've got some great advice for, for property investors. But if we could finish off, if you could pick one piece of advice for, for property investors to share, what would that be? It's Buy even well a catchphrase. I mean, Trump would be happy with that <laughs> um, one, right? <laughs> I think that's where the similarities between Trump and yourself finish, but um, that's, a, that's a cracker. I think, uh, I think that's a great spot to end. So thanks, thanks very much uh, for, for joining us, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed today.